before we begin, I just want to let you know there's some profanity and adult language in the first section here. So if you want to skip that, you can go to about 27 minutes in and we start talking about China and the coronavirus. Let's begin. Hi, Dr. Jones. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Uh, so thanks, thanks for your time. I can't thank you enough. And I know time is precious, so uh, I don't want to, you know, hold you too long. Okay. Um, uh, so you just published a book, Logos Rising. Uh, that's looks so excellent. Um, I want to read it, but as an expat in China, I don't do physical books anymore. So I'm wondering, will it be on Kindle soon or some other digital option? No. The, answer, the short answer is no. It's, uh, we have a, a, a big first run. We want to sell out, sell all those books. I wish post postage was better. I wish the mail service was better. But as of now, no, it's, there's, it's not going to be on in electronic form anytime soon. Okay, that's fine. Um, I will probably get here's, a physical copy. I just here's a physical huh? copy right here. We got them a week ago. We've been sending out orders every day. So uh, that's the way it is. That's the way it is for now. That's fine. That's fine. I understand. Um, I'll get to it when I can. <laughs> so um, first, I thought we could talk about the Jews. This is a, an, a common topic. And of course, he wrote a long book about it. So here's one question. I know I've never seen you uh, have been asked this before. Um, in America, you know, we have these magic words like the N word, the C word, and so on. Now, there used to be a word for the Jews, which was kike. And sometime before I was born, this word just like disappeared. So I'm wondering uh, if you know about that, what happened to it? Yeah, well, the word is back now. Uh, but uh, in a way, you probably wouldn't expect there's a Jewish lawyer um, by the name of Roberta Kaplan who uh, gets involved in attacking groups that she doesn't like. She uses uh, the law as a weapon to destroy people. And the main group she's trying to destroy right now were the people that went to the Charlottesville rally. Uh, she has filed uh, frivolous lawsuits against them. Uh, it's not that they did anything wrong. This is to intimidate people and convince them that they do not have the right to assemble and they do not have the right to free speech. Now, she describes herself as a chubby lesbian kike. Now, this <laughs> is the word, the word has come back. Uh, now it's used as a weapon. Now, if, if, you, if you say, well, Berta Kaplan is a chubby lesbian kike, you will be guilty of hate speech even though that's the word she uses to describe herself. So this, this is just some indication, some small indication of how these pejorative terms have been brought back by the very people they were used against as a weapon, uh, basically taunting people to quote her so that they, can get, they will get banned from uh, internet platforms. Hmm, I see. Um, the, the reason I ask is because all of the other pejorative terms I can think of, they they don't really change. They kind of stay bad forever, with one exception being maybe like nigga versus nigger, you know, the hard R versus the, right. the soft vowel. But yeah, this this the K word, you know, it, it has like, Z, it went from a very serious pejorative to, I mean, growing up, I mean, I just never heard it. And when I did hear it, People say, oh, oh, that was from a long time ago, you know. Well, uh, what, what usually happens over a period of time is that the pejorative term gets adopted by the group that it was used to describe. And I think uh, a nigga is the classic mm. example of this. This is a common term uh, of uh, address among black people in America. It's used all the time. Uh, but if you use it or if a white person uses it uh, in any position of prominence, he will lose he will lose his job and be forever banned. When my, my son was uh, worked, my oldest son worked as a stockbroker in New York. 
and he was on the subway and he was being harassed by the uh, Hebrew Israelite sect, a member of that sect, uh, which later became famous because they were involved in the murder of Jews in Newark. Uh, but uh, he's being harassed. He's on the subway. The subway is full of black people. The guy, he's being harassed. He's obviously white. And then the people, the black people start yelling at this guy, this black Israelite saying, settle down, nigga. This is this is the way they were dealing with him defending this uh, this white guy. So it becomes uh, it becomes adopted by the people it was created to to uh, to denigrate. Another word like that would be Quaker. That was not the word that Quakers used to describe themselves. They were called friends, uh, and so on and so forth. The Fighting Irish is now the name of the Notre Dame football team. That was a pejorative term that got applied to them by the WASP teams from Harvard and Yale way back at the beginning of the 20th century. So it's a kind of normal phenomenon. Uh, uh, but with the Jews, uh, nothing is normal. And so this term now, this term kike, they are the ones bringing it back, but uh, they are the only ones who are allowed to use it and it becomes a weapon against anyone else uh, who try who would even quote them? So it, it, we have now, uh, for example, electronic robots that scan things, and if that word comes up, you will automatically get banned. We did this. Uh, we found this out uh, because I have a number of uh, eBooks on Kindle, and one of the titles uh, uh, that I had there was um, "Jewish Nazis." Now, this was a, a movie review that I did of a film called The Believer, which was about a Jew who became a Nazi. So as soon as the robot found it, it was banned. Uh, the book got banned. But then we wrote back and said, well, wait a minute. You're selling the movie that I reviewed. You're selling the movie that I reviewed. And you're, that's not being banned. So why is my review of the movie being banned? Well, you can't argue with a robot. You know, and it's virtually impossible to make contact with a human being at a place like uh, Kindle, Amazon, all these places just withdraw into their castles and pull up the drawbridge and you can't contact them. So but, uh, what you have is uh, the result of this is a lot of frustration on the part of people who are being unfairly targeted by these ridiculous uh, speech codes. Yeah, and uh, these weapons are unbelievably powerful. I really hope they'll go away sometime soon. Doesn't seem that way. Uh, anyway, uh, one more question on <laughs> this word, junicorn. So I I first heard this from Owen Benjamin, I think, but it's to me, it seems like it's like the flip side to the Jewish revolutionary spirit where uh, it's someone who is, uh, you know, born as a Jew, but they they feel um, like they're not part of the tribe, maybe, but but they still have this kind of like hunger for God and for truth, and they know they can't get it from their own people. So when they do convert or you know do something, they can rise to uh, to excellence and prominence quicker than usual. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on unicorns. <laughs> Uh, I, this is the first time I've heard the term, so I'm not quite sure uh, that I'm talking about the same thing. But we we have a, a, a situation in the Catholic Church right now. You're right. There are Jews. Every Jew uh, is given a choice in his life. Uh, he wakes up one day and he realizes, wait a minute, what what am I? What do I belong to here? What is this group that I belong to? What kind of group is this? Uh, Israel Shamir came to this understanding when he was in the IDF during the Arab-Israeli war in 67. The artillery barrage was about to begin. He had some rusty weapon in his foxhole that didn't work. And he woke up to the, this understanding that he was a little chess piece. He was a pawn. The little Jews were being moved around on this chessboard by big Jews in their interest and not his interest. And as a result, he converted to Christianity. Uh, I'm saying this is a this is a universal moment. I'm saying that because it's a theological 
uh, based on a theological premise, which is basically that God will give every human being the chance to be saved. And the only way you can be saved is through baptism. Baptism is necessary for salvation. So in order to be fair to the Jewish people, God has to offer them the opportunity to be baptized at some point during their lives. And a lot of people accept uh, because they understand that they're part of a, a shady operation. I mean, let's, let's be honest here. A shady operation that has been in existence for 2,000 years. 2,000 years of rebellion against Logos, which is what my book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, is about. So, okay, so a lot of these people do convert. And now, suddenly, we're confronted with a new problem, uh, which I've called uh, in a uh, something I just wrote, uh, which will appear in the May issue. Uh, it's a review of Nazi hunters, the, uh, uh, the new Amazon Prime series. <clears throat> I've called it the Neo-Converso Crisis. Now, the Converso Crisis took place in Spain during the course of the 15th century. Uh, when masses of Jews converted to Christianity. Uh, they had the disputation of Tortosa. The rab rabbis were shown as completely inadequate. They could not defend the Talmud against uh, the Catholic uh, authorities who were simply asking him if these uh, passages, like blasphemous passages, appeared. They didn't know how to defend themselves. And so the Jews converted en masse. Now, when you have a mass conversion like that, you're going to drag along people who may not be sincere. And this is complicated by the fact that the rabbis condone insincere conversion. They condone this. The Catholic Church does not condone it. The Catholic Church says you cannot deny Christ. And if they threaten you with death, you have to die. And then you'll be die a martyr's death and you'll go straight to heaven. But you can't deny the faith. Well, Jews can. And so you had the result. There were large numbers of Jews who converted insincerely. And they were still acting like Jews still causing problems, which in this instance meant supporting the uh, Muslims uh, against the Reconquista, that the Spanish Catholics are trying to drive the Muslims out. So they're a fifth column within uh, the Spanish empire, Spanish kingdom, and uh, so the church brings in uh, the Dominicans to, uh, to conduct an inquisition to tell whether these converts are sincere or not. No Jew ever perished uh, at the hands of the Inquisition. It was only aimed at Jewish converts who were determined, who the church said had to hold them to their baptism. They, they were baptized. That means they accepted Christ and certain duties followed from that fact and they were not following these duties. They were warned and eventually some of them got burned at the stake for doing this. That was then, that's the Converso crisis. Then we have what we call a Neo-Converso crisis now. So we have people uh, who convert to Catholicism. Okay, now conversion means you change your habits. You don't just mm -hmm. walk in and say, okay, here I am. You got to change to adjust me. Well, this is precisely what's happening with these Jewish converts. They, they have Jewish privilege. They've been raised with the sense of that they have Jewish privilege. And they feel that they can bring this Jewish privilege into the Catholic Church because of their... Uh, DNA. Okay, let's be honest here. This is a form of racism. Okay, they have special DNA. And so one of the bad habits that they drag into the church is their uh, tendency to denounce uh, other people as anti-Semites. This is a bad habit. Okay, the term has no meaning. It has no meaning in contemporary life. It used to be an anti-Semite was someone who didn't like Jews. Now, an anti-Semite is someone Jews don't like. That's the only meaning that this term has. Classically, it meant that uh, Wilhelm Marr created the term in the 1870s in Germany because he didn't like uh, the Christian uh, terms because he was a revolutionary. So he came up with a racial term and it had disastrous consequences for the Jewish people when Hitler started acting on this racial uh, determination of what it means to be a Jew. So someone like Adich um, Stein, who had become a Carmelite nun, was dragged into a concentration camp, uh, never to return, uh, because she had Jewish blood. This is not what we believe, okay? We believe that if you accept baptism, if the Jew accepts baptism, he is no longer a Jew. 
because a Jew is a rejecter of Christ. You've rejected the rejection, so therefore you're no longer a Jew and we accept you wholeheartedly. But now you have people like Dawn Goldstein, to name just one of these people, Rachel Bratton Weiss, another one. I could go on and on here. Uh, people who come into the Catholic Church and they start denouncing fellow Catholics as anti-Semites. Well, this I'm sorry, Dawn, but the term has no meaning. It's a meaningless term. And when you use this term, what you're saying is that you still want to retain Jewish privilege after you come into the Catholic Church. This is, this is a terrible situation. Uh, and it, it is exactly uh, the, the, the perverted response to what we just talked about. In other words, someone waking up to the fact that, yes, there's something wrong with this operation, this anti-Logos operation known as Judaism. There's something wrong. The people understand that it's wrong, and they move to the source of truth, the source of Logos, which is the Catholic Church. They join the Catholic Church, but they still have the same old bad habits that they had before they left. And the main bad habit we're talking about here is denouncing people as anti-Semites. So they have to get over this. Get over it. This is not, <coughs> this is not charitable behavior. It is a, a calumny against uh, fellow Catholics, and it's got to stop. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, anti-Semitism is such a nonsense word. And, you know, one easy way you can see how how crazy it is just flip it on its head and say pro pro semite are you a pro semite like it means nothing so when i actually see people use this word what i say is i i tell them i can't respond to nonsense it's like it's against my religion if you're saying anti-jewish just say anti-jewish that's fine and we can deal with that well um, there, now that now the terms now I think I, I played a role in this, to be perfectly honest with you, because now the term anti-Jewish is being uh, now trotted out as if it's a synonym for anti-Semitic. That is not the case. They are two completely different terms. So uh, if you uh, talk about the Gospel of St. John, there are some Jews who will say that Gospel is anti-Semitic. That's preposterous. The word didn't exist then. There is no racial con there is no racial uh, concept whatsoever in the gospel. It would be totally meaningless because from a racial point of view, they're all exactly the same. All of the people, the protagonists in the gospel are exactly the same from the point of view of their DNA. Mm. But obviously there's a conflict in the gospel. There's a conflict in the Acts of the Apostles, and the conflict is between the Jews who accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Jews who rejected him and called for his crucifixion. That is a fundamental conflict in the gospel. The point of my book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, is to say that it's a fundamental conflict in human history as well. It's been that way ever since. Uh, it is not anti-Semitism. You cannot say the gospel is anti-Semitic, but yeah, I think you can say that the gospel is anti-Jewish. Mm. I think that all Christians, if you read the gospels and the acts of the apostles, you're called to be anti-Jewish. You have to be anti-Jewish because that's part of the what you part of the struggle that was going on at that time. The Saint John uses the term the Jews, hoyudeoi, 71 times in his gospel. It is always with one exception, it is always a pejorative term. And it mm. always uh, is the exact opposite of some type of racial designation. So, for example, one of the passages is the parents of the man born blind refused to speak out of fear of the Jews because the Jews threatened to expel from the synagogue anyone who said that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, they are from the D from the point of view of DNA, which is the basis of anti-Semitism. They're all exactly the same. So it can only have a theological meaning, and that means the meaning of anti-Jewish is a the When you say anti-Jewish, you're talking about something theological that has nothing to do with race. But you're also saying that Catholics have to be anti-Jewish. It's simply mm. the message of the gospel. It's <laughs> the message of the gospel and the act of the apostles. So we have to make this clarification. 
Now, when you say, uh, first of all, I agree with like everything you're saying, and I think you've done a really incredible service bringing light to this otherwise uh, dark realm. And one, one more aspect of the darkness I see is, well, how many Jews are there in the world? Right now, it's 18 million out of 7.7 .7 billion people. This is a tiny percentage, and yet it's considered, you know, one of the world's major religions. So, you know, much like the coronavirus, some people are just really bad at math, I think. Well, yeah, because the, the, the Jews have this ability to gravitate toward uh, world leaders and the countries that they lead. And so, for example, they came to... Uh, after World War II, there were two powers in the world, and uh, one of them was the Soviet Union, and the other was America. And Jews played a, 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 a dominant role in both countries. First of all, the Jews, uh, Bolshevism was a, a Jewish political movement. I, I deal with this in great detail in the uh, Jewish revolutionary spirit. Uh and as a result, communism, in spite of the uh, the fact that Trots, uh, Stalin purged Trotsky from the party, uh, continued to retain Jewish Jewish dominance uh, even into the the modern era, the the end time, the end phase of communism under Brezhnev and people like that. Uh, the same thing is true of the United States. They reached leadership positions for various reasons. Um, one of the most significant was standardized tests. The Jews perfected the ability to cheat on standardized tests. Uh, it was a man by the name of Kaplan. He had a, uh, a, an SAT prep course in Brooklyn. And he basically, uh, in order, if you took his course and took the test, he had a party afterwards. And after the, the requirement to get into the party was to give him one question from the SAT test. Well, but after about uh, a few years, he had every single question because the dumb Goyim who made up the test in Princeton never <laughs> changed the questions. So he had the answer to every question. The, the Jews in Brooklyn scored uh, perfect scores, 1,600 on their SATs. They got into Harvard and they took over. Harvard is now a Jewish institution. Used to be a WASP institution. Now it's a Jewish institution. So this is the way uh, Jews get control of the culture. They then dominate medicine because the Harvard Medical School uh, is a prestigious school. They dominate law. Uh, Alan Dershowitz is a good example of the, the, uh, the aggressive Harvard law professor who uses the name of Harvard to advance his Zionist agenda. So that's why, uh, that's how they took over our culture. And uh, that's why we had this big conflict uh, in this past year, 2019 was the year of the battle over the Internet. <coughs> the battle was, are we going to allow the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, to, to determine who can speak on the Internet? That's what the battle was about. And the ADL brought out their big guns and they talked about hate speech. Hate speech was, again, a completely meaningless term like anti-Semite. Hate speech yeah. means anything, any utterance that Jews don't like. Uh, it's not even just Jews. It's basically the people at the ADL who run the Jewish mind. Uh, uh, and they pulled out all the stops. Uh, uh, the end of November, they had their convention. Sasha Baron Cohen threatened the Internet providers with jail, <laughs> even though they were supposed to be on the inside working together. And then the next day, the ADL issued a list of 10 people who had to be banned. And I have to admit, I don't want to brag here, but I was one of those 10 people. So it was uh, an honor to be singled out of, of all of the billions of the people who are on YouTube. I was singled out as one of them uh, by the ADL uh, who needed to be deplatformed. It hasn't happened, uh, but that's not because they haven't tried. The only other definition I can give you is the one I gave, uh, I found in Poland. I was doing a book tour in Poland for the Polish edition of Libido Dominandi. And during the question and answer period in Torun, a man stood up and he says, um, I hear you're an anti-Semite. And then there's a pause. And then he says, 
that means you must have something important to say. So that would be the uh, other definition. When you're called an anti-Semite, you're saying something that needs to be said, but uh, most people aren't willing to say it. Mm. So uh, before we talk about China and the coronavirus, I just want to try to inject some positivity in here. You know, Lord Christ has told us to love our enemies. And even though I'm not a Christian, I, I, I love Christ. Like, and, and being like, just trying. I, I mean, I don't really have enemies, to be honest. But to, to really try to, to love everyone, even if I don't like them, especially if I don't like them, and to be humbled by that process is something I'm so excited to practice. And I know you're practicing that too. Yes, the church uh, said you should love your enemies. That is one of the fundamental tenets of Christianity. The church never said you should pretend that you don't have enemies. Or worse than that, the church should not pretend that it doesn't have enemies. It will always have enemies. And uh, we are to love our enemies. And the main way we love our enemies is by exposing them to the truth. Because if you don't expose them to the truth, they will never come to it and they will never feel the necessity to, to convert. And that's the whole point of spreading the gospel. It's good news. The Logos is accessible in a completely new way now because of the incarnation. And you can participate in that by simply going to a church, the Catholic Church, and being baptized. And now you will participate in the Logos in a way that you couldn't have imagined before that time. This is an important message for China, by the way. Uh, there is a large Catholic population in China. Unfortunately, no one knows how big it is uh, mm. because there are underground churches. There's a Chinese patriotic society that Rome is trying to work out some type of uh, relationship with them. But it's an important issue in China because China, whether they liked it or not, they had to adopt the, the ways of the West. After, mm. after the, the British uh, sailed down their rivers during the Opium Wars and fired cannons on their cities, it was a, such a, a humiliation that they had never experienced before. And they vowed to catch up to the West in one way or another, largely through military technology, which they have done. Uh, but the problem here is that they've adopted all the worst aspects of the West. So you begin with communism under Chairman Mao, and you've got a Jew advising him, Stanley Rittenhouse, <laughs> who just died recently. And then, <clears throat> as in the rest of the world, communism is so against human nature that it naturally brings about a reaction. And so in the 1970s, the Chinese communist oligarchs brought in Milton Friedman, and then they converted to capitalism. Well, they didn't convert because basically what you have in China now, you're, I'm, I'm saying this now, you tell me if I'm right, because you're there, but you have the worst of both worlds. You have communist repression and free market rapacity, uh, where the people are prevented from uh, protesting against their economic exploitation by the very communists who were supposed to liberate them from economic exploitation. Yeah, the well now, yeah, perfect segue. China is on everyone's mind right now. So the the main takeaway for me for these past just a month or two ago, what I've learned is that it's now official. China has officially taken the number one spot as the most powerful nation in the world. First of all, do you agree? They can only, first of all, the Chinese economy has surpassed the United States economy. We know that. Okay, so that's, that's one indication. We have uh, Jewish Wall Street to thank for this basically beginning with the Reagan administration when the United States converted to Milton Friedman economics and they set up the era of leverage buyouts on Wall Street. The Wall Street people bought up companies manufacturing the greatest manufacturing power in the world, bought up these companies, loaded them down with debt, and they all went belly up and then the companies outsourced to China. 
and this created the 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 Chinese uh, economic powerhouse that exists today. So in that sense, uh, yes, it's true. And this is always going to be a cause of war. Uh, it's what happened. This World War One happened after uh, Germany surpassed England's economy as the most powerful mm-hmm. economy in Europe. So it's always going to be a dangerous period when that type of thing happens. Hmm. Um, as for as for me and most people in my city, Chuanzhou, things are like totally back to normal now. There's, you know, you wear a mask going outside, but there's a little less traffic than usual. But I mean, things are like mostly back to normal here. But meanwhile, in the West, I mean, I like I can't believe what I'm seeing. It's it's a failure like across the board. Um, so I looked up the numbers just two days ago. Uh, there's 114,000 deaths in the world from coronavirus. That's 0.0015% of the global population. Meanwhile, the the whole world is in lockdown. People and people losing their jobs, committing suicide. Like it's it's. I honestly can't believe my eyes. I knew this was like the plan of the oligarchs for a while now to try and bring the Chinese totalitarian system to the West. But the fact that they've successfully done it already, like before I'm speaking that, it it already happened. Like, I, I just can't believe that. So for, like, who do we blame, first of all? Okay, well, first of all, the big question here is, what was the role that Wuhan, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, played in this releasing this pandemic or starting this pandemic? We have two. We have evidence here that uh, the uh, professor Zhang Ji was uh, paid by uh, USAID and other American uh, government agencies to develop uh, coronavirus by uh, splicing bat DNA into it. Now, the the question is, so the, we have also evidence that there's being smuggling and theft going on. Professor uh, Lieber of Harvard University, the Jewish professor at Harvard University, has been arrested by the FBI and uh, for taking uh, $50,000 a month in payments from the Chinese government, plus $100,000 in expenses, plus million dollars to set up uh, bio labs in, in China. There's also evidence that the um, the Chinese have smuggled biological weapons in from Winnipeg in Canada. So it looks as if the Chinese were either some indication is that basically the United States outsourced its bioweapons program to the lab in Wuhan. That's one indication. Uh, but we're faced with a question here. Did did the virus? Let's assume that they were dealing with this toxic material. There's evidence that uh, they hired people. The people were not used to the protocol, and they infected themselves with this thing. And then one of these people died. And at this point, it spread into the population. Now that would presuppose an accidental uh, source for the virus, but it could be uh, the Chinese government, on the other hand, is saying that it was released deliberately by the United States as a bioweapons attack on them. Okay. So what what are you you hearing over there? So. Okay, so well, first of all, my my Chinese is you know just so so. So I, I don't actually follow Chinese news in Chinese, and most of the media I get is the same thing that many other Westerners are getting. But let's just skip it past all that. Okay, let's let's even say it was deliberate by the Chinese. So what? They've already cleaned it up here, and and the. the the problems that are happening in the West are still there, where you know alcohol stores can do sell all they want, but like health, some health stores are are deemed not essential and they're closing. Um, that's, you know, you, there's pictures of people being like fined and arrested for being alone on the beach, like this is, and 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 I, I really want to stress here, this is no longer just like a China thing because. The other Asian nations, like they're handling it pretty well. Like uh, I have oh, wait, a friend wait, in India. Stop, stop there. Uh, I just got reports today from India. 
there is massive rioting all across India. Oh, yeah, India is not handling it well. No, <laughs> first of all, what what's the cause of this rioting? Well, Narendra Modi came on television and he announced that he's extending the quarantine till into May. Uh, there are when he created this quarantine, there he he created a situation where large numbers of Indians are going to be threatened with starvation. There are large numbers of Indians in places like the slums of Mumbai who work uh, day jobs. They get a job uh, in the morning, they get paid in the evening, and that's how they support themselves and their family. All of these jobs were immediately eliminated as soon as the lockdown was imposed. And they, at this point, the people uh, in the slums of Mumbai decided they're going back home because they can't earn a living in Mumbai anymore. So this set massive numbers of people in motion throughout India. Now, if they have the disease in the slums of Mumbai, now they're going to spread it throughout the entire subcontinent. So now when he announced that he extended the, the, uh, the, the quarantine, huge rioting broke out in Mumbai today. There's rioting all over India now because Modi is basically not being honest with the Indian people. Why is Modi doing this? Why is he locking them down? Well, because the World Health Organization has told him to do that. And if he does that, follows World Health Organization guidelines, he will be eligible for a loan from the IMF. And the IMF has agreed to give India $1 billion uh, on the condition that they follow these guidelines. Well, this billion dollars, I know this from inside information, it's not going to go to fight the pandemic. It's going to go to the oligarchs to, in India to basically prop up their slave labor market because during this period of time, the garment industry has collapsed. And that's one of the main sources of income for this cheap labor paradise called India. So it's not going well in India at all. Yeah, I agree. And actually, Dr. Jones, you were the first person who uh, got me researching into India. I have friends in India, but I didn't actually look at the numbers until you said there was something like 30 deaths in the whole country. I said, no way. I can't believe it. they're locking down the whole country over 30 deaths. And I looked it up and it was like, you know, 72 deaths or something, which is just as insane. It's beyond insane. I mean, it's literally it must be evil. That's the only word I can use for it. It's so deliberately full of darkness. I just have to call yeah, it out this as is, evil. This is uh, out of 1.3 billion people. So yeah. it's an infinitesimal, especially they pick They must pick up 30 people every day from dead bodies from the sidewalks of Calcutta, simply mm. dying of all the poverty-related diseases that you find in places like that. So it's mysterious. Whenever you're confronted with irrationality, which I think is what we're confronted here, you have to look for a, a hidden agenda. And I think the hidden agenda is IMF money if you follow World Health Organization guidelines. And the World Health Organization uh, has a vested interest in inflating the numbers. There's no question about it. So today, another article just came out today. The New York Times uh, announced that uh, they've added 3,700 deaths to corona, to the coronavirus statistics. What this means is now it's over 10,000. Now, these people were not tested, but they're presumed to have died of coronavirus. Well, why are you presuming this? Well, because it's in the interest of certain groups to inflate the numbers. Uh Here's one thing maybe you can help me out with. Um, I see that there's 6 million, 16 million people, Americans, losing their jobs. I can't understand how or why that's happening. With me, for instance, and uh, I, I think all my Chinese friends here, yeah, I haven't worked in three months, but I still have the job. I'm, some people don't get payment. Some pe I'm getting full payment, which is great, but... Like why, I just can't imagine why they're losing their jobs. Why is that actually happening? Well, this is an attack on the lower middle class. And the lower middle class in America has businesses. They have businesses like restaurants. And all of the restaurants were closed. We have a situation here in mm -hmm. South Bend, Indiana. There is one death here from coronavirus in St. Joseph County, which is where I live. And this was an 84-year-old man who showed up at the hospital with pneumonia. Uh, he was tested 
uh, and then he tested positive and then he died. Well, if it hadn't been for the hysteria in the media, he never would have been tested. And so therefore we wouldn't, he wouldn't have qualified as being a coronavirus death. So that's part of the problem here. You know, you've got this hysteria that is driving up the numbers when the reality is not, is not the same. And then you're advocating measures that are not necessary. Uh, the closing of all of the restaurants, for example, is going to put a strain on that lower middle class group of people who own their own businesses. They do not have the reserves that the big, you know, McDonald's has, for example. McDonald's is not going to go out of business. They're still in business. They're doing takeout and they will always be in business because they have that much capital and the ability to borrow uh, behind it. These people, this we go to a, a Mexican restaurant after mass on Saturday. Well, uh, if this man bought that building, he probably has a mortgage. And if he doesn't make his mortgage payment, he's going to lose the building. And that means the waitresses who work there will have no place to work. And the, this will just snowball. And mm, that's okay. part of the problem here. Okay. So it's, it's, it's really the businesses that are shutting down. And that's where the jobs are. Well, they're being shut down. They, they, they basically, the state of Indiana says you can, if you own a restaurant, you can't open to the public. I mean, that's just one example of this type of shutdown that, uh, as far as I can tell, is not warranted. What, what, we're, what you're seeing here is uh, the empire organizes everything from the top. And mm. so New York City is a very important city, and they've got a bigger problem. I talked to a correspondent there who told me that it was the main reason New York has a problem is because of 9-11, because of all that toxic dust that went into the air, people breathed it, and they all have compromised uh, pulmonary systems in New York City. So there would naturally, but then you've got this, as I said, this New York Times story saying, well, they just added 3,700 names to the, to the fatality list overnight. So overnight, the whole uh, thing got worse. In New York City, just when they were, we were being told that the hospitals are empty and it's going down, the numbers are going down, then you have this artificial inflation of the statistics that is going to warrant a longer shutdown. And that's what the oligarchs want. If you listen to Bill Gates, if you listen to Anthony Fauci, depending on what day you listen to him, uh, uh, you listen to Jeffrey Sachs, they are all interested in prolonging this. And there seems to be a strategy emerging here. The pay, one of the par, uh, issues here is to prevent Donald Trump from getting reelected. That's what they mm -hmm. want to do. Yep. One of the, another important I issue for people like Bill Gates is give us time to invent a vaccine. Bill mm -hmm. Gates is Mr. Vaccine. After he got <laughs> out of Microsoft, he got into the vaccine business. And even on one of his interviews, he even had the gall to say, well, we will... Uh, we have a test that you can use. He's hawking his tests on an interview on mainstream media. And then he starts talking about immunity certificates. You know, in other words, if you buy my test, I'll give you an immunity certificate and then you can go around and do your business. Well, who made this man our ruler? Who elected him? Nobody. And, and at a certain point, Donald Trump is going to have to wake up to the fact that these people are out to destroy him. They're using medicine to destroy him and he better get control of the situation because if he doesn't, they're going to determine the situation and they're going to ruin him and ruin the economy as well. Mm. There is uh, this whole thing is a mess. I have, I have literally nothing more. I think can come from that. So I want to do a quick shout out to uh, the only comment from our last talk that's worth mentioning again from Mama Lama. <laughs> he, she said, uh, the West has split into half anti-logos, half pro-logos. I think this explains a lot of what's happening. And this has been going on for centuries. So I, th yeah. I think, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is, this is the, the, the gist of my book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. The axis of human history are the people who support Logos on the one side and the people who hate Logos on the other. At the time of the crucifixion, it was the, the Jews who accepted Jesus Christ and the Jews who rejected Jesus Christ. It's about 400 years later, St. Augustine came up with a, a plan for the, the real plan for human history is the, that choice 
Uh, he described it as the city of God and the city of man. The city of God uh, is oh. love of God to the extinction of self. The city mm. of man is love of self to the extinction of God. That is the Brilliant. fundamental axis of human history. It's Brilliant. never going to change until God, until Jesus Christ comes again. It will not change. And that's precisely what we're being uh, faced with uh, in our day. But the point, Logos is important here because we're confronted always with science. Now, whenever a man announces that he's a scientist, that's the end of the discussion. I mean, I, I can't say, I'm so, oh, you're a scientist. I guess I better shut up at this point. Someone needs to point out the fact that this is antithetical to representative government and democracy. Because you're always faced with a situation where it's not going to be one scientist. It's going to be a number of scientists. And you're going to get contradictory instructions, contradictory demands, contradictory programs from these different scientists. And at this point, you're going to have to decide, well, how are you going to decide? Well, you have Logos. <laughs> That's why how you're going to decide, because it's going to come down to a human being let's say like Donald Trump, uh, to give the prime example, who's going to have to say, how am I going to adjudicate all of these competing voices? Well, I have to use logos, I have to use reason, I have to analyze, I have to come up with a, a rational uh, explanation of what's going on, and then I have to act on it. And the idea of discovering the truth and then acting on it is called prudence. And prudence is a form of logos. And so what we're saying here mm, is okay. that logos is now more necessary than ever. That's why I wrote this book. Because what you have is that whole scientific uh, technocracy that began pretty much with the Enlightenment, where the scientists tell us what is real. That's all collapsing before our eyes. It's, mm. it's, it's over. It's over, and we're going to have to make decisions based on reason, and that's why Logos is important, and that's why this book is important. Mm. I personally believe, uh, I mean, as great as that sounds, I don't think it's enough. I don't think rationality, I mean, I mean, okay, so, so this is what I want to ask you, like, uh, I guess just linguistically, in terms of daily conversation, what's the difference between logos and truth? Truth is the correspondence of the thing and the mind. So truth is psychological. That's the mind apprehends that there is a correspondence between the thing and reality. I, I'm sorry, between reality and the mind. So if I say, you know, the gun is on the table in the dining room, you go in, that's, that's words. Those are words that I just said. If you go into the dining room and the gun is there, you say the correspondence. So that's true. Logos is ontological. It's not psychological. Okay. Logos is simply the attribute of being. Saying that the ultimate attribute of being is rationality, is a form of, which is rational, which can be comprehended by the mind, uh, and your mind can correspond to the source of all rationality, which is God's mind. So there can be a correspondence between your mind and God's mind, and when you have that correspondence, you have truth. And so you can be, so then once you have the truth, then you can act. So that, that, that's, that's the connection. You need to make contact with Logos in order to understand uh, the truth. Once you have the truth, you can be uh, assured that you know reality, you know what's going on, and then you can be secure in taking some form of action. That's basically uh, the whole point of human life on this planet uh, for all of human history. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the security aspect there is essential that's what we're missing i think um and so, I, yeah, so I'm, what i'm trying to say is this is good news this is good news because now you're freed from the tyranny of the scientist who the scientist is invariably in the pay of the oligarchs 
that's that's pretty much why he's been called a scientist. Anthony Fauci is the spokesman for Big Pharma, and so what you have uh, are a lot of large, a lot of German scientists, to be honest with you, who are simply saying, "Well, I have this degree, and this is what I understand," uh, and you have to make a decision. Who's who's right in this matter? I think it's clear that these people, these disinterested. German scientists who have basically oftentimes made money on their own or are not dependent on Fauci or the big pharma for their income uh, have the better argument. And I think that their, their argument is going to prevail. I think that the, the reason is going to prevail at this point. It's an act of faith on my part, but I think that's what's, what we're seeing here is there's a counter narrative that is emerging and more and more people are accepting it. And it's not the panic mainstream news media paradigm. I think what I've been doing my whole life is I've been using the word truth as if it were logos. I, I, that's actually what it always was for me was an ontological thing as in like God is the truth and the truth is like a, is like a, a real thing. You were saying it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's being itself or it's it's an aspect of being? I forget it's the It's the word psychological means. apprehension of being. That's what it is. Truth is psychological. I don't want to relativize truth, okay? It is true. If it's true, you have a firm foundation in reality because truth means that your ideas have made contact with reality. That's what it means. But I'm saying truth is fundamentally a psychological perception, uh, whereas logos is an ontological uh, statement. It's an ontological fact. That That's the difference. That's the difference. I'm not trying to disrupt anyone's belief. I'm not trying to be- become a, a, a cultural relativist or anything like that. I'm just stating the fact as it is. You have to perceive the truth uh, before you can act on it. And that perception of the truth is what we call truth. You have to perceive the being, the fundamental, the foundation of your belief in being is known as the truth. That's what that's. And then once you have that firm foundation beneath your feet, then you can start acting in a positive way. And I'm sure you and I would agree that that foundation can only come from God, right? God is Logos and Logos is God. This was the great revelation that St. John made in the in his gospel in the beginning there was logos logos is with god and logos is god so it's not uh little balls bumping into each other to give you a competing version of ultimate reality that's known as atomism it's also the basis of materialism and it it, it was exploded in the 20th century uh through the work of uh, werner heisenberg and the people who created the atomic bomb there is no such thing as an atom, if by atom you mean something that is an irreducible particle that makes up everything else. It doesn't exist. Heisenberg realized you can split the atom into smaller and smaller pieces until finally it disappears as energy. Uh, but when that energy releases, it's very powerful, and that's the, basically the, 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 uh, <laughs> the effect of the, to- the atomic bomb. So materialism died during the 20th century, but people are still acting as if it's around. It will probably never go away. There are certain people who are invested in it, and science is one of the main mouthpieces of materialism in our day. Logos is God. God is Logos, but um, God is also greater than Logos, too, at the same time, right? No, nothing is greater than Logos, because Logos is God, and nothing is greater than God. They are interchangeable terms here. The, the one man who figured this out was Hegel, and he used the German word for Logos, Vernunft. Every time you hear Vernunft, when you read about Vernunft in Hegel, it's, he's talking about God in a, in a way that he thought could be uh, comprehensible to the Enlightenment, which was tired of religious war. Mm. So it is uh, Logos, the, the Greeks who started off thinking this way uh, were not wrong, but their view got expanded by St. John who had, uh, and the Incarnation. So at this point, 
the Logos became flesh. No one could have expected that. If you talk to Plato, his idea of following Logos was to rise up through contemplation to the realm of forms. And if you can contemplate the realm of forms, that's eternal and you will be happy. Well, St. Augustine tried that and he failed because you cannot rise up to the realm of forms because you're burdened by all sorts of sin, uh, including original sin, which is a kind of congenital weakness that always leads you uh, to become a slave of your passions. And so this is the big turning point came when these people realized, well, we can't do it. It's impossible, but we don't have to do it because now the Logos has come down to us. We don't have to rise up to the Logos. The Logos has come down to us. And so for uh, basically a thousand years, nobody did anything but meditate on those theological issues. And then once uh, by the beginning, the middle of the uh, 13th century, when Aristotle arrived in places like the University of Paris, then people started thinking about science again, and that led to the whole rise of science and the whole uh, marginalization of religion, uh, which was facilitated by Luther, who just made it a kind of anti-rational enterprise. All this is discussed in this book, the whole big big picture, Hmm. beginning to end. Yeah, um, I, I can put that to the side, the whole big picture theology stuff. I can, for now, forget about that. I guess what I'm still having trouble with is the practical applied aspect of it. So, you know, there's the Hegelian triad, right? Logos, ethos, and pathos. So, how, how like, if, <laughs> like, God is God. I already have God, <laughs> you know? So, like how do I live with logos and why don't I just say God? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I have Krishna. Because, I God have that became, whole thing. because God came down to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. He did not abandon his people to, so that everyone had to be a philosopher in order to be saved. That was the Greek platonic view. It didn't work. Uh, and it's, it, 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 they, they abandoned it. But it's not necessary. So if you're asking on a practical level, what is the cutting edge of Logos in human history? It's the Catholic Church. Ever since St. John wrote that gospel using the term Logos, the Catholic Church became the cutting edge of Logos in human history. So if you're interested in a practical application of this, you need to become a Catholic. You need to get baptized because the Logos incarnate did not leave everyone to their own devices. He created an institution that would help them in a practical way. And the name of that institution is the Catholic Church. So if you're asking me for practical advice, that's the practical advice. Get baptized, join the Catholic Church, and then you will have that entire history of 2,000 years of people thinking through this, great minds all throughout history saying, well, if you want a pictorial representation, then you can go to Italy and they'll give you, you know, like... uh, Raphael and and uh, all of these people, they did that in a pictorial sense. If you want in terms of music, it's they, all of these people have collaborated over the centuries in a practical way to help you. And the focus of this is going to be the Catholic Church. So that's all I can say to you. I you know I wish I could tell you everyone to to follow me, the Jones religion, you know, <laughs> become a Jonesian. You know, and send me $10 and I'll make you happy. No, I'm not going to do that. It's not my job. The, the, the vehicle of Logos in human history is the Catholic Church. You need to join the Catholic Church if you want some type of practical help in achieving that. Hmm. Okay, then. Um, I'll have to figure out where Dharma fits in with this whole thing. <laughs> yes, you will. If that's what your that's what your issue is, you're going to have to work all of this out. I'm saying, you ask <laughs> yeah. me a question, I give you the answer. If you ask me pra- something about practical things you can do, I've told you what you can do. So the burden is on you; it's not on me. I have released. I have done my. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, so you. This is karma. So you you've done your job. So now there's no bad karma coming your way. That that's how it is. Yeah. <laughs> right and uh, okay we can uh, 
We can call it a, a morning for you and a night for me. Okay. Good luck. Good luck with whatever's going on over there. Thank you so much. And uh, you too, Dr. Jones. Thanks again. Okay. Peace. Peace. V for Vishnu.